This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, we have a return guest, and and what a delight, Lawrence Juber, one of the world's greatest acoustic guitarists, highly regarded by his peers, uh, everybody who I know who is a professional or amateur musician or guitarist is in awe of this guy's technical skills, prowess, musicology, musicality. He is just a quadruple threat. The work he does is is really quite fascinating. I, I found him because I'm such a huge Beatles fan, and his cover versions of Paul McCartney's Wings and three albums of, of Beatles songs, uh, it's just dis- astonishing and delightful, and there's really nothing else nothing else like it. My, my recording engineer, Medina, was just blown away by the version he did of uh, uh, She Loves You. Uh, but any of the songs he, he does are just so unique to him, and yet so obviously a Beatles song. They're just, just amazing. And what's really fascinating is the depth of his musical knowledge and his understanding of the history of both the guitar as an instrument and the history of music and how it's developed. It's it's really fascinating. I love his work. I find him fascinating. I was thrilled to be able to sit here and, and listen to him. Um, I recorded two of his songs, and I'll, I put them up on YouTube. One is The Beatles. The other is Little Wing, which is just insane version of that song. So with no further ado, here is my conversation with Lawrence Juber. My extra special guest today is one of my very favorite musicians in the world. His name is Lawrence Juber. He was born and raised in London. Uh, Immediately upon graduation from university, began working as a session guitarist with a little-known producer named George Martin. He was a studio musician on thousands of sessions before he was invited by Sir Paul McCartney's band Wings for their 1978 tour. That's really what brought him to wider spread public notice. He has recorded 25 solo albums, many of which have received critical acclaim. He has won two Grammys. He was named top acoustic guitar player of all time by Acoustic Guitar Magazine and has been called a master of the acoustic guitar by no less than The Who's Peter Townsend. Lawrence Juber, welcome back to Bloomberg. Happy to be here. So we could do the whole conversation with you just answering That's in right. musical That's right, just musical answers, yeah. Without, uh, so before we get into the specifics, I have to give you kudos. The last time you were here, and people, I did not mention that you're also a musicologist. We had a long conversation about what was the copyright suit against Led Zeppelin oh, and Stairway right, yeah. to Heaven. And you very specifically said... I don't see how both of them, meaning Zeppelin and the plaintiff, didn't steal the music from this <laughs> this classical piece of work from the 1500s or 1600s. 1600s, yeah. Uh, and and it turned out the court more or less agreed with you. It was basically it was a public domain chord mm-hmm. sequence. Um, and you can't steal now, from the now, public domain. But you got to look at the context in terms of Led Zeppelin that they were in the habit of purloining existing material. Oh, really? I oh, didn't yeah. know that I was mean, true. Oh, yeah. There, I mean, one can one can look at that, but it's not uncommon. 
When you say purloining, there's a difference between inspired by mm, yeah. and stolen from. And, and like having to add other composers to the credits down mm. the line when they got caught out. We just saw that happen recently with, with Blurred Lines, and we saw that not too long ago with um, another big song. Blurred Lines, Blurred Lines is a weird one. Yeah, I was surprised by that. It was the, almost like the drum line was. Well, the... yeah, the thing that the weird thing about it was the judge didn't allow the record to be played, Bizarre. and yet it was the groove on the record that was actually what had been taken. Mm -hmm. And you know, if that was the case, if groove was the issue, you know, Bo Diddley would have been a multimillionaire on the basis right. of everybody every copying rock and that roll groove, song right? steals the soul from him. Whereas, like Chuck Berry actually did get. You know, did um, get compensated for you know Beach Boys, you know Surfing USA, mm -hmm. you know, taking you know, and John Lennon got sued, you know, because uh, here for come on flat top, they you know, on um, it's from you can't catch me. It's, a, it's did from he Chuck lose Berry. that case? Yeah, he lost that case. And, and obviously George Harrison. Well, the George Harrison one was really weird uh, because that... Alan Klein owned the publishing catalog for both that, for both songs, so he was basically. Suing himself. Suing himself. Yeah. Why and, and did that take place? That that can that happens. My 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 brother-in-law Ross um, handles has handled the Beach Boys uh -huh. uh, record company for a while, and there was one particular lawsuit. You know, there's all this intrigue within the Beach Boys. You know, where Al, Al Jardim was on both sides of a lawsuit. He was basically suing himself, mm -hmm. <laughs> and the judge pointed that out. So the problem with that is that your legal costs are twice as much, but you're guaranteed <laughs> to win. That's right. So you, you got that lose. going for you. Well, so, you can lose, but you can also win. Yeah. So so is this an ongoing problem with copyright issues and, and music? You would think that everything is always based loosely on what came before. Well, there is that. I mean, there are, there are elements. The, the substance of music mm -hmm. is in the public domain. I mean, very simply, you know, you take a string as a guitar string, right. and you touch it halfway, you have an octave. You right. touch it in thirds, you have a fifth, fourth, five, and then you, you keep going up there, right. and, and you get what's called the harmonic series. And out of that harmonic series, you build chords, mm -hmm. you build melodies. The, the, the building blocks are pretty fundamental on how you arrange those building blocks and do it in a way to avoid stepping on somebody else's copyright is the challenge. And in, in the songwriting world, the, 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 the uh, adage is write a hit, get a writ. Because the, well, you saw the, the uh, Tom Petty song sounded so much. So, so, and I bet you that he didn't actually copy it. It was just simply... That, that that's kind of a progression. That's, right. you know, and, I mean, there, there were some Australian guys that put together a YouTube video where they took dozens of songs, all of which were number one records and all had exactly the same chord sequence. Because mm. there's no copyright on a chord sequence. Right. Copyright, strictly speaking, copyright is on melody and lyrics. So in the case of Blurred Lines, they were going outside of the bounds of that. And what mm. you end up with is, is just aggressive... Uh, proactive musicologists uh -huh. finding lawyers you know, and lawyers that, that they team up with that, that can really muddy the waters with all of this. What was the Talking classical, of was waters. it Pachelbel, <laughs> Cannons and Geek, that everybody said that, that a lot of songs have loosely been based on? It's a similar sequence. I mean, that's the Pachelbel. Mm -hmm. But, uh, for example... You know, these kind of sequences are... Not uncommon. 
Ahí está. So you get that, that sequence. So many songs. You know, like Journey, you know, Don't mm -hmm. Stop Believing is based on that. But it's not a copyrightable thing. That substance of it is, is just, is truly in the public domain. It's how you articulate it. It's what lyrics you put to it, what you do melodically, and how much of a melody is the same as something else. My special guest today is Lawrence Juber. He played with Sir Paul McCartney and Wings on tour in the late 70s. And recorded, too. And what did you record with them? On Back to the Egg album. What's the big song from that? Um, the single that was contemporaneous with that was coming up. It was um, Good Night Tonight. Okay. And oh, then it was song. Getting Closer and um, Arrow Through Me, that, that period. The late, like the Indian summer of Wings, as I call it. But then after that coming, <laughs> the last Wings number one was coming up, mm -hmm. which was live. And that, that was, was a big song. I remember yeah, that. Was, that. Yeah. You're playing with George Martin. You're doing a lot of session work. Uh -huh. What's it like when the call comes from McCartney Hey, I need a guitarist for the next tour. It didn't quite come that way. I had been playing on a TV show with David Essex, who was a big English pop star at the time, and each week they would have a different musical guest. So one week was Twiggy, which was mm -hmm. kind of fun. They did Send in the Clowns together. Um, Ronnie Spector the next week. Then the next week was Denny Lane, and Denny was you know, one of the founding member of Wings right. with Paul and Linda, and um, had originally been the lead singer with the Moody Blues. And, and we did Go Now, which was a big Moody Blues hit. Uh, and Denny liked my playing, and we kind of bonded. Mm -hmm. And then a couple of months after, I ran into him at a London studio where Paul and Linda were working with him, and, and they, he introduced me. But there was still, I mean, this was kind of September, October of 77. I got the call in April of 78. So it mm -hmm. wasn't like an overnight thing. And I was very entrenched as a studio musician. I had, that had been my ambition from the time I was 13. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, if I knew then what I know now, I would have oriented myself to be, being a songwriter. Right. There's a lot more money in it. That's, that's where but, the, but nonetheless, where the my, my goal was to play guitar and make a living doing it. I mm -hmm. wanted to be a professional guitar player. Whatever and that took, being in top 40 bands, playing in jazz bands. I played in the National Youth Jazz Orchestra. Mm -hmm. I, I'd, I'd established myself. And I was working at Abbey Road in the iconic Studio 2, the Beatles studio, on a session. And I got a phone call. Now, getting a phone call on a session at Abbey Road was unusual. Mm -hmm. This and is for, for the younger listeners. Back then, we didn't all have cell phones no, in the pocket. No, there were no cell phones. Yeah. It, it was literally white courtesy phone, Lawrence Juber, a call yeah. coming in for you. Uh, and the phone was up in the next to the control room, and there's a big long staircase. And you never went up there as a, as a musician. You know, you stayed down, stayed downstairs in on the studio floor. But I had to go up, and I'd never seen the control room before. So go up in the control room, go take the phone call, and it's McCartney's office, it's MPL, and and. The guy says, uh, Denny wants to know if you can come and jam on Monday. And oh, by the way, Paul and Linda will be there. And as it happens, I was free, thank goodness. And if you weren't? <laughs> if I wasn't, I would have made myself free. Um, and I kind of went into a slight panic because I didn't really know any of the wing stuff. You know, mm -hmm. I, at that time, I was into being a hotshot studio player. And right. it wasn't, I was listening to pop records, but. You know, the, there weren't a lot of guitar solos on the Wings records. And mm -hmm. that was the thing, you know, I was much more into 
more of the progressive, you know, fusiony stuff and Weather Report and um, Return to Forever. And I was listening to like Chick LA Chick Corea, uh-huh. and then like uh, Los Angeles guitar players like Larry Carton, Lee Rittenau, you know, those kind mm-hmm. of like jazz guy, fusion guy studio players. And um, but so I borrowed some LPs from my brother and listened over the weekend. But I realized there was no way I was going to be able to anticipate what we were going to do. And as it turned out, we jammed on some Chuck Berry grooves and mm-hmm. some reggae kind of feel things. And, and they said, what are you doing for the next few years? <laughs> At which point I had to think about it deeply for a nanosecond because I, you know, I'd established myself. Sure. I mean, I'd worked really hard and I was making a decent living doing it. But I couldn't turn down the opportunity to Impossible. work with Paul McCartney. So, you know, I, I said, well, I, I guess I'm playing with you. <laughs> yeah, I, I think the rule of thumb is when Paul McCartney says, what are you doing for the next few years? You say. You tell me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so uh, it, was, um, it was a big change. Now, but personally, it, it happened at a, a really crucial point in my life because my father had passed away a month earlier. So it was a very kind of emotionally wrenching period and you know to then step into the situation where not only was I working for Paul but he was kind of an artistic mentor as well and it really was, it became an extension of my education you know because I'd studied at London University got a bachelor of music degree in musicology and music theory I never really studied guitar formally except in high school I had classical guitar lessons that's amazing but it wasn't my ambition to be a classical guitar player. It was simply a way to have the necessary grade level in performance to be able to continue to study music theory. Because what intrigued me was the way that music was put together. And watching you play various songs, it's clear that you don't just pick up a guitar and strum. All of the compositions I've seen you perform have been constructed painstakingly with great a forethought, if that's even a word. (laughs) But it's clear that these aren't just, oh, let me run off a few riffs. You really spend time charting these things out in great detail. Figuring out how all the parts work together. I mean, that's that's the challenge. That's the the technique. So McCartney and Linda say to you, hey, let's go on tour. What's Actually, not not straight away, no. First thing that happened was we went up to Scotland to his farm and Mm -hmm. spent a few weeks just working through potential material for an album. So before we were even rehearsing for the tour, oh, oh yeah, let's the tour get some came, tracks came way later, way later. Yeah, because mm-hmm. he owed he had just signed with Columbia Records. He'd been on Capitol mm-hmm. for years. Signed with Columbia as a signing bonus. He got a great deal on the Frank Music CBS songs, Frank mm-hmm. Music catalog, which included Grease Chorus Line and Annie all of which got made into movies within a year of, of him acquiring those copyrights. Oh, really? Yeah, he, Paul was well on the way to becoming the largest independent music publisher in the world because Linda's father, Lee, represented a lot of the composers. Lee Eastman was, was uh-huh. a big-time big time music lawyer. And, in fact, after we had spent some time in Scotland and we shot a video from an existing track, we then came to New York, went out to Long Island, out to the Hamptons, and spent a few days getting to you know chat about the business end of it with with Lee Eastman which was you know pretty impressive i have to say and then we went back to england and then went up to scotland again and started recording an album 
which we continued to do in Scotland. And then we went down to a castle on the south coast of England, Lim Castle, which is like a 13th century with battlements and ghosts mm-hmm. and spiral staircases. It was great. And then we went into Abbey Road and did some recording there and ended up actually in the basement of Paul's studio, uh, Paul's office in, in Soho Square, London. One Soho Square, which is like a great address. To mm-hmm. And and we built a replica of the control room of Abbey Road Studio too, so that we could mix the album because we couldn't get into Abbey Road because Kate Bush, I think, or Cliff Richard and Kate Bush were using it, and we couldn't get the studio that we wanted. So we just Paul created his own. Let's talk a little bit about the business of music. You mentioned you were happy uh, earning a living as a studio musician. Mm-hmm. Do those careers still exist to the same degree they used to? They do to some extent. I mean, you know, the union, AFM, used to have a lot of clout. Mm-hmm. And in some areas it still does. I mean, in television, movies, as long as they're studio movies. There's, right. you know, and, and it certainly can be rewarding, uh, but it's not as reliable a source of, of income as it was even, you know, 20 10, 20 years ago. I mean, mm-hmm. it really, the amount of that kind of work has diminished because the technology has had an enormous impact. Whereas it used to be that you'd have to put together an orchestra to do a score. Now you mm-hmm. can do it, you know, in your bedroom, basically, um, with a laptop. Wow. Um, yeah. so, but it doesn't necessarily have the same dimension to it. But then, you know, that depends on the budget. But but being a studio musician is was always, you know, really going back to the 1920s was a, a viable way of making a living. Just not nearly as much as it, it was to, not nearly as much today as it once was. Correct. I mean, now really where the money is, is in the songwriting. And my daughter, Ilse, for example, is, is becoming a successful songwriter. Mm-hmm. And I see how it works for her in terms of, and it's not just, Records. It's not just record sales. Television and streaming is streaming is not a great source of revenue no. for songwriters. For, for performers, it's better. The ratio for they find something of mine gets played on Sirius, for mm-hmm. example, or Pandora. Hopefully, Pandora will still be around <laughs> for a while. If it gets played there, I make seventeen times as much as a performer as I would as the as the writer. Oh, publisher. really? Yeah. It's a, Does it's that a, make any sense? That seems kind it of It makes backwards. sense if you're the performer. <laughs> but if you're the performer-writer... I guess there's a certain karma involved because performers never got and still don't get money from terrestrial radio mm-hmm. at all. It was always um, looked at as promotional and not exactly, as yeah. free content. Exactly. For, uh, it, it's free promotion for your concerts. Mm-hmm. But, and that, which well, is it, why, used, it used to be free promotion for your albums. Well, no, but, before that, it was free promotion for your... Live performances, too. So we went from live performances as a, a big source of income to, to, albums, to albums, and now we're back to live performances, I mean, not albums? Um, to a large extent, live performances and T-shirts, you know, mm-hmm. merchandise. Um, and, and CDs have, you know, dropped off a lot, but, you know, show merchandise in terms of, I mean, you've seen me at my shows, sure. you know, with, with a stack of CDs and a line of people mm-hmm. running signatures and stuff. That that's That's a... A way, and it's great because I'll get to meet the fans, but I also get to hand over the work, you know, the mm-hmm. artistic work. But but the real money in songwriting is is in first of all is in radio airplay mm-hmm. and television and synchronization licenses. Mm-hmm. So a song, I mean, for example, Ilse co-wrote Fireball for Pitbull, uh-huh. and that got used. Oh, that was on, a big song. Big song got used on Dancing with the Stars. Uh huh. 
they pay a, a synchronization license for the right to use it, and then BMI collect performance royalties for mm-hmm. it. So there are revenue streams that develop out of that. Um, a, a cell phone company might license it, or, or CBS. Yeah, or C, um, uh, she also co-wrote a song for Major Lazer called "Powerful," and CBS Television were using it as background for promos for upcoming shows. So uh-huh. they pay a license fee for that. That generates BMI. Um, so there are there are solid revenue streams that come from that kind of activity, um, and that's really where the music publishers, you know, that's that's their lifeblood is is that kind of activity, and it's worth their while to have a roster of successful songwriters that whose publishing they administer, and that you know, publishing is typically kind of a a lot of pennies that add up to a substantial stream. So so the thought of a couple of people getting together in a garage, recording an album, going on tour, selling still the functions. album. It's still a viable business model. Mm-hmm. And there are people that are doing that, especially if they get good social media support, mm-hmm. who can actually make some decent money. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I hear rumor of people that actually make money out of YouTube videos. But, but the reality of it is that YouTube doesn't really monetize mm-hmm. as well as some other outlets hmm. do. But it's a it's a new frontier because digital just changed everything basically. Really, that's that's fascinating. Yeah. yeah so but- so given the shift to digital from analog recordings and the way you as a musician have changed um, where you focus your time, what does this mean for people who want to go into the field of music? Is is their emphasis completely different than it once was? To some extent, yes. I, I mean, I think it's it's actually broadened the field. I mean, mm-hmm. thirty years ago, there were no video game. That's outlets. a source of revenue for. And I've for... written for video. I've written for Blizzard Entertainment, you know, Activision Blizzard. I did uh, music for Diablo Three, which was a big game. That was for a them. giant game. Yeah, and that's something that didn't exist in a previous generation. Now, there's a man named Tom, Tommy Tallarico who is the most successful of all the video game composers going back to like super mario brothers kind mm-hmm. of like you know those very like nintendo games that's a, a new end of the business let's talk a little bit about some of the guitarists you mentioned uh you you mentioned a few names earlier mm-hmm. um uh, remind me of uh who you referred to out in la well i mean the number one on the list i think for everybody is Django reinhardt Oh, oh well, yeah, but the guys in LA would be like Larry Carlton and Lee mm-hmm. Rittner, you know, who and that's started specific... off as studio players. There was a path of being a studio player in LA that was followed by like Barney Castle mm-hmm. um, and, and players like that who were studio guys but also were jazz players. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Kale, they could do rock and roll uh, they could for do the rock dollars, and roll, but yeah. they preferred the jazz yeah. side. I mean, Barney Castle, for example, was actually a mentor to Phil Spector. Really? And played on a number of those records. And, and you know, like um, the when you go back and you listen to some of those, especially like the 50s movie scores, some of the Mancini stuff, and you'll hear mm-hmm. like some really kind of like Give jazz guy. Oh, well, I'm not tuned for the okay. for Mancini right now, but... Um, but some, but some of the jazz guy, you know, like especially like Barney Kessel, who was a mm-hmm. big hero of mine. And you mentioned the Django Reinhardt. Django Reinhardt. The Belgian Gypsy, uh, who I think everybody kind of looks to as being probably the greatest guitarist of all time. Really? Certainly the father of that style of 
On the European side, yes. But, but the father of American jazz guitar was Eddie Lang. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the, how does he differ from Reinhardt? Well, Eddie Lang was of Italian descent. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he worked with Bing Crosby. I mean, he was Bing Crosby's right-hand man. So oh, really? Different stylistic area. I mean, the, Django was very much in the gypsy jazz kind of... <laughs> You know, right. this, this kind of like, there's, what, that rhythm is what they call the pump, uh-huh. the pump. And it, it kind of just sits in a particular kind of groove. Um, Eddie Lang was, was a very versatile guitar player. Did a lot of records with Joe Venuti around the 19, 29, 30. But even prior to that, I mean, the first bona fide recorded blues guitar solo was Lonnie Johnson. Mm. Uh, recorded a, a piece called... Um, uh, 688 Glide in 1927, and that has all the, uh, you know, all those kind of. With him and a piano player, mm-hmm. uh, 688. And, but all those bent notes and vibrato uh-huh. and improvised blues solos, that's, that was really the beginning of it. Because the guitar didn't really kind of have make a big mark in the recording industry until the mid mid to late twenties. Let's talk about some of your contemporaries, or let let's I'll work my way um, historically. Let's talk about Les Paul a little bit. Oh yeah. What what is my great regret in life as a grad student? I lived on Seventeenth and Third, around the corner from Fat Tuesdays, where he played every week, and I kept saying to myself, "Oh, I have to go see Les Paul." And five years later, well, then he it was then he went late. over to Iridium. Mm-hmm. I missed uh, the window closed before. I, I had yeah, I I actually went to play with him at Iridium on a Monday, a very rainy Monday night after a huge nor'easter, mm-hmm. and he couldn't get there. He couldn't get out of his house because oh, the bridge really? had been washed washed over. Uh, but I played with his band. I played with the Les Paul band. What, but I never got to actually play with Les. What do you think of him as a guitarist? Oh, fabulous! I mean, one of the great jazz guitar players before mm-hmm. it became kind of a pop star with with Mary Ford mm-hmm. and and of course not not just a great jazz player but also really the father of the modern recording technology i mean it, you know the modern studio modern recording studio pretty much les paul is to the st- recording studio what thomas edison was to the light bulb and and not only to the recording studio but also to the electric guitar to some degree. Electric guitar to some degree, but he didn't invent the electric guitar. But he did invent a lot of things like multi-track recording. So you you recorded a version of Peter Townsend's, you did a few Who songs, Won't Get Fooled fooled Again, again. which I believe you once said, Townsend said, was impossible to do on guitar. Um, He didn't say that to me. He was amazed that I could do it on guitar. I mean, I, you know, I do it in, in dadgad tuning, mm-hmm. which is one of the altered tunings that I use. Mm-hmm. And the intro, which is a synthesizer, right? like a sequence synthesizer thing. Which is why he thought it couldn't be done in, in, on guitar. So, you know, it's like that, and it's... You, you have to be, you have to figure it out. Right. And you can't do it in standard tuning. And then it kind of breaks into. I don't do Roger Daltrey's scream. <laughs> what do you think of Townsend as a writer and a guitarist? Oh, it's fabulous. I mean, one of the great, 
great rock artist. What, what makes him so good? To pull a line Jeez. from uh, Pinball Wizard. <laughs> That's right. Um, it's just that the combination of talent, and clearly there's a genetic component because his dad was a musician. Oh, really? Too. I did not know that. Yeah. There's a combination of talent, persistence, experience. You know, you can't do what he does without having that that intensity of dedication. Mm-hmm. It's not easy to maintain a career, to, to, to start a career in the music business and then to maintain it. For 30 it? or 40 years. Yeah, I mean, but look at, and look at McCartney. I mean, he's still going out and For doing three-hour concerts. Years. Yeah. yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. Let's, um, what about Mark Knopfler, who I find to be fascinating? Great player. Really interesting because he, you know, he plays fingerstyle. Yes. And he's a lefty, but he plays right-handed. Oh, I did not know yeah, that. Yeah, there's a few, few guitar players who that, are lefties who, who are lefties who play righty. Does yeah. that well we know Hendrix used to play and a handful of other guys used to play actually lefty. What does it do if you're a lefty playing righty? Does it give you an advantage with your left hand? You know, it, it that's you have to ask a neurologist that. <laughs> um, I mean it, it's remarkable to me what what I can do with my left hand and yet if I pick up a pen can't do anything. It's right. it's like hopeless, you know, but but uh, but the fact is that, that both hands have to be, you know, especially with finger style, they really have to be equally quasi. And, and the left hand is actually doing more, mm-hmm. but the left hand corresponds to the right brain. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of, a, there's a creative flow that happens. Makes there. sense. Yorma Kokkinen. Oh, Yorma's great. I saw him at a tiny pub in college, and he was just mesmerized. Yeah, no, he's great. Um, I taught. He has a, a camp in mm-hmm. Pomeroy, Ohio, called Fur Peace Ranch, mm-hmm. and I taught there and got to hang with him. And you know, and and like we're eating breakfast one morning, Yorma pulls out his guitar and starts singing songs for us, and it was so cool. Just out of left field. Yeah. Yeah, just um, really a very talented individual. I was never a giant Hot Tuna fan, but I always thought he was a fascinating musician. I liked what he did. An interesting point of background is that he studied from the D.C. area originally and studied mm-hmm. with Sophocles Pappas, who was a you know one of Segovia's uh, protégés. Interesting. I, I have a handful of guitarists I have to run through. Okay. I have to ask you about. Eric Clapton. Oh. Yeah, well, you know. What can you say? The the Blues Breakers album with John Mayall, mm-hmm. um, Hideaway, you know. I mean, that that was uh, an epiphany for me, hearing that for the first time. And then Frank Zappa. Oh, we brilliant. We don't talk about Zappa that much anymore. Brilliant guitarist and, a, and an even more brilliant composer. Mm-hmm. One of the greats. But, you know, just so eccentric. Yes. You kind of, you don't even realize just how, how dense and what kind, of, what kind of granular detail is on it, going on in his music. I used to see him a lot in London when he would, I saw him at the Albert Hall with mm-hmm. Don Preston playing the huge organ there. That was really cool. What's fascinating is his son, Dweezil, who's also right. a good guitarist, pulls out each year these kids out of Berkeley College mm-hmm. of Music and they're 19 and 20 years old, and they tour playing Zappa's music, and they're amazing. But there's a lesson in estate planning, because you know that there's a conflict within the Zappa family, and Dweezil can't promote it as Zappa plays Zappa. Right. 
not right. allowed to. But you know, there's you, litigation ongoing, yeah, and it, yeah, it's I horrific. Mean, it's, yeah, you gotta you gotta get stuff like that straight, For, to say the least. We have been speaking with Lawrence Juber. Uh, be sure and check out my daily column on BloombergView.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast. Lawrence, thank you so much for uh, doing this and bringing your oh. acts and, and playing a little bit. Um, you, we were just saying you develop an intuitive sense of, of timing. Mm -hmm. you, can, you can tell when you've done a 90-minute show yeah, without... Yeah, I have a pretty good sense of how long the show, you know, just 90 minutes, 60 minutes, 45. I kind of, you just... Is I know how many tunes. Of... Well, it's partially a number of tunes, but also just you kind of just feel it, you know. Uh -huh. you, you, I mean, and that's for me. That's always been part of the professionalism of it. Is to you know, the contract says you play for ninety minutes. I play for ninety minutes, and then mm -hmm. I'll you know, maybe do an encore after that. But but it's always important to me to deliver. And my philosophy was always make myself indispensable, mm -hmm. you know, which means be professional, be on time, be in tune with the right instruments. And, and then that translated once I got onto the stage where I was being the artist uh -huh. to be able to deliver and, and be entertaining and engage an audience and all of those factors. So let, let's talk about engaging an audience. I have seen you sometimes deliver lots of stage patter, lots of backstory, mm -hmm. not quite full-on John Pizzarelli anecdotes. Right. But, oh, I, I can do anecdotes at times. Yeah. But then there are other times I've seen you where you're all business and I'm playing music and nothing's getting in my way. Well, especially when I'm, I'm kind of, I mean, I've been on the road now for over a week. Uh-huh. And the more gigs I do, the more my chops get kind of, you know, like, Get so honed, you have to limber up. Well. You you can have a you can come off the off the road and be a little rusty when you're starting. Um, yeah, a little. Um, I mean, it's it and but it it changes from one gig to the next. I mean, certain shows, depending on the environment, I might be more improvisational mm -hmm. or lean more towards the set pieces. Um, sometimes it'll, it'll just feel really loose and I'll stretch things out. You mm. know, it's like when I'm playing Little Wing, for example. I love I, that song. I And you destroy that song, and by I, the way. But I leave a space for myself where it's completely improvised. Oh, really? You know, I'm playing over the changes, but, but, uh -huh. I, but I never play it the same way twice. In fact, I never tr try not to play anything exactly the same that, way twice. That was the question I was going to ask you because there are certain songs, especially when you're doing covers, um, that... They sound pretty similar from song to song, and then there are other versions where it's like I didn't never heard that before. Where did that come from? Just it's it's the moment. It's being in the musical moment, mm -hmm. you know. And it's it's kind of I have to be very conscious of what I'm doing and where I am, but but also allow myself to get to to seek transcendence. Okay, you know. How does one seek transcendence? Just by not interfering. Because what, what you do is more complex than most. Because yeah. if somebody is just playing a single lead 
and they're they're I don't care how fast or slow they're playing notes. It could be Eddie Van Halen or mm-hmm. whoever. They're thinking about the sequence of those notes and what they're playing. You're playing nine things at once because well, it's it's vertical rather than horizontal. That's that's exactly so what everything, I mean. It's one moment to the next. Yeah. So when when you're playing, you're not thinking in terms of note note note. You're thinking in terms of these six chord these six strings at once. And what am I playing? And and wh- there's a lot of things going on. When I'm working stuff out, yes, but in performance, I'm really trying to tell a story. The muscle memory just takes over. So the muscle memory is in there. The and that's really the stuff that gets warmed up during the course of a tour. Is that I just become more finely tuned in the narrative aspect of it, which mm-hmm. then allows me to be the freedom to to do. Um, you know, in music, there's a, a term called rubato, which, which is means that you know you can kind of play around with the tempo a little bit. Uh-huh. But it, the, the Italian means to rob, and like strict rubato, you don't actually slow anything down. It's just if you slow down in part of the bar, you you speed up in and the rest of you're the bar. So you're always stay you always stay in the pocket, mm-hmm. and that stuff that I find myself being more casual about as a tour progresses, for who, example, which who, makes it interesting because then it changes the texture a little bit who from is, show to show. Who is recognizing that when you're doing it? Uh, I am. <laughs> and now, a few, I mean, a musician's, re- there was a, a concert pianist in the audience mm-hmm. uh, last night's show who, who recognized such, so that, that kind of Do you of have thing. a conversation afterwards? And yeah, like, we did, Hey, actually. I noticed yeah, yeah. you. Yeah, uh, we did. And that's just, but but you know, the the average audience member just is there to be entertained. They're yes. not necessarily going to pass things like that. They're going to just enjoy the concert. So, what sort of stuff do you enjoy playing? What is entertaining for you when you're out on tour? Oh, I I particularly like it when I can actually create that space to be able to be improvisational. So it doesn't and, matter what the song is. The song is just the backdrop. For you to, that's the canvas for you to paint upon. Right, yeah. And sometimes it's, it's you know, paint by, num- not paint by numbers in the sense of, of just being by rote, but, but you know, I, I, there are areas to fill in the color, mm-hmm. but other places where it will just kind of take off into its own, its own kind of thing. Do, do you, when you're being transcended, it works itself out. Do you ever paint yourself into a corner? Oh, totally. And think, how am I going to get out of that's, this? But that's that's the fun part is getting out of it. In in <laughs> live in real time, there's oh, yeah. no no. Yeah. When you're in front of an audience, there's no. Hey, let's re-record this. I messed up. Yeah, no, hey, Medina, rewind that. I screwed up. Yeah. It's I have to figure out a way yeah. out of this. Oh, or, or, or my fingers will figure out a way out. But you and, know, but but I have the the musical knowledge. I have the understanding that I know where I'm going. And it's not mm-hmm. where you've been. Mm-hmm. You know, if you stop and think about what you just did, you don't get to the destination. Right. And, and it's all about destination. From one move to the next, it's where does it go next? You know, what's the resolution of this harmony? What's the evolution of this fingering? And, you know, I mean, there, there could be a certain amount of stress involved uh-huh. if it's like, Oh, <laughs> okay, and uh, you know, but sometimes I mean, you know, I'll I'll like you know the the stage lights will kind of blind me for a second, and I'll land on the wrong fret, 
Mm-hmm. But, you know, you slide up one or you slide back one. And, and nobody really picks it up. No, because it, 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 it ends up just becoming part of the texture. And then it was like, oh, I'll do that again because mm-hmm. <laughs> it sounded cool. You, know? you have a lot of guitarists and a lot of musicians as fans. Mm-hmm. Does that affect the way you play? Are you thinking about that? Hey, mm-hmm. if I do this, this subgroup of fans are going to appreciate Not it? Or really. you're you're more in the moment? I'm more in the moment. Do people, um, do although pe- it might change if it's a jazz audience. You know, if I'm playing way? with my trio, for right. example, then I'll be less of the, the solo self-sufficient thing and much more into having a bass player there that's going to lay down something uh-huh. that I can then Work really of. fly over the top. And then you know, there's a little bit of kind of strutting one stuff for the, the mm-hmm. jazz jury, as we, you know, we refer to it. How often are you out with a trio versus being oh, solo? I, not that often. I mean, if a festival thing comes up. Oh, last December, we did a Christmas tour for my Christmas album because we'd recorded it that way mm-hmm. the previous Christmas. So. Bass and drum or bass, bass and, and drum? Piano? Upright bass and drums. Mm-hmm. Light, you know, just light drums. But then, you know, second set, I had strapped on an electric guitar and we, we turned into a, 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 a um, Yuletide jam band, shall we say. <laughs> Who are some of the other musicians that you uh, have been foundational to your development? Well, one one musician that was very helpful to me was was Ike Isaacs, who was a, an English studio guitar player who, mm-hmm. uh, for a period, played with um, with um, Stefan Grappelli, who was Django Reinhardt's violinist. And Ike was just—I think he was the one who kind of said, "Look, you, you've got all the technique; you just need to learn how to use it." Mm-hmm. Um, and then there was a man named Tony Romano who was, um, uh, we talked about Eddie Lang. Uh-huh. Um, and, and Tony was, a, was a, a singer and a guitar player that traveled with Bob Hope and Francis Langford in the USO. Um, and you, typically it would just be the three of us, and three of them, and then with Jerry Colonna, the comedian, and maybe some dancers that would go and do all the USO tours during World War II. And Tony was, he, I mean, the best lesson I ever got was with him saying, play big notes. What does that mean? What, what play are big, big no- notes? Big notes are notes that mean something. Mm-hmm. You know, because you can play a whole flurry of notes, but they don't necessarily have any kind of substance to them, no importance to them. But, a, you know, you, want, you play one note, mm-hmm. and you put some expression into it, and it, it then has all this dimension to it. So a, a, a dimensional note, not just a one-dimensional note, but something, you know. I'm, I'm going to get very um, local and, and retro on you. As a kid, there was a local band called the Good Rats. I don't know if you know them. I have heard of them. And yeah. they had a song called Tasty. And you, the, what you've just mentioned with Big Notes is a line from one of their songs, Speed Ain't Nothing Without Class. You have to play Tasty. And... Right. It's very much along that those yeah, lines of so. the the notes have to matter. Doesn't matter, you know. I mean, you can play fast, and the, mm-hmm. you know, there's value in. You've seen me in concert. I mean, there's sure. value in playing. You know, those those like kind of flourishes. You know, those that that kind of thing. But but it needs it needs to be balanced with with expression. So For me, anyway. One of the questions I get from listeners all the time is: Ask your guests about books. What sort of stuff do you read? You're you're traveling a lot. Are you- uh, a lot of airplane stuff. I mean, I just load up my Kindle with you know kind of adventure. Or are you reading musicology and, books or are you uh, reading? To some extent, I, I recently I've been reading uh, reading some musicology mm-hmm. stuff. David Burns had an interesting book out not too long ago. 
um, of the Talking Heads. Oh, okay, uh, yeah. I, right, I, no, it might even be called that. musicology yeah. or something like um, that. I'm into guitarology. Guitarology. Kind of where, yeah, where guitar meets musicology. I've been doing a lot of study of 19th century guitar music, mm-hmm. and partially because of my association with Martin guitars. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have a, a talk that I give, um, Guitar Mania to Beatlemania, which is a slideshow history of the guitar, and I can play some examples of uh, period pieces. And I have a, an 1893 Martin Parlor guitar that works really nicely for mm-hmm. that stuff. So play us an example oh, of... I have to retune, hang on. I was in dadgad tuning for... The whole time? No, just earlier on. Let me get... A quick example here. Um... Just finished. Now you're not even looking at. at I have a tuner here. Yeah, but you, are you paying attention to it, or uh-huh. are you doing doing it by ear? Yeah, but I'm listening to. Because I'm watching you not look at that as you tune. Ah, uh, but it's tucked back here. You see. Oh. There was uh, an Italian named Legnani, Mm -hmm. who was a contemporary of Paganini. In fact, there's thought that the two of them played together. And he was known as the Paganini of the guitar. So it would be like 1820s. And by any modern standards, he was a shredder. I mean, here's a little bit of Legnani. It's 1820, yeah. Not what then, you imagine. Then um, there, um, there was a, uh, an American guitar player. See, what happened was that there was this kind of what we call classical guitar now. It's really Spanish classical guitar. It's mm-hmm. been filtered through Segovia. But there were a lot of um, central northern European guitar players in the early 19th century who were extremely influential. You know, professional guitar players. I mean, mm-hmm. the only major difference between what they did and what we do now is they had no recording industry then. Right. Um, and the, they were very influential on the, the growth of the American classical guitar. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in the second half of the 19th century, there was a whole school of guitar music in, in America, which mostly we call parlor guitar music. And that ties in with the history of Martin guitars, which I, you know, my signature model is a Martin. Um, here's an example. Um, Martin's agent in New York in the middle of the century was a, a man named Charles DeJannon. Um, and he, this is a, a little bit of a mazurka that he published, and very typical, like marches, mazurkas, waltzes, um, published in 1880. You know, that kind of thing. You know, Sounds par- like Played a in the parlor. Yeah. Yeah, but a mazurka is the, uh, you know, this kind of little mm-hmm. bouncy thing is characteristic of the mazurka. Um, so how does that go from, from what you played earlier to this to how does that eventually translate to 
modern American classical, and then blues and the Beatles. So, well, what happened really was that you know, in, in the classical area, and there were by the turn of the century, there were two major guitar players. There was William Foden, known mm-hmm. as the wizard of the guitar. And then there was a woman named Vada Orcutt Bickford, who, and they were kind of polar opposites. He was very technical. He was famous for his incredible tremolo techniques. Mm-hmm. And she was very artistic and very, very much in, the, almost like a precursor of the new age kind of thing. Mm-hmm. She was actually an astrologer, as was her husband, too. And then there was something called the BMG movement, which was the banjo mandolin guitar movement, which was kind of a marketing thing that, uh, to se- help sell all these. When was that around? Well, around part? the turn of the century. Mm-hmm. And you have, you have Gibson had mandolin orchestras, and you know, uh, there was a lot of that going on. But when Segovia came along in the 1920s, he kind of swept away the, the American side of it and replaced it with the kind of the gravitas of the Spanish classical guitar. Well, give us, give us an example. Uh, well, I mean, Segovia, you know, it's, it's classical mm-hmm. in that, I mean, like Bach. You know. It works so well on guitar. What's that? It works so well on guitar. Well, yeah. I mean, Bach, Bach wrote that for lute, mm-hmm. so it works on guitar. But but here's something to think about, especially the second section. It's where Paul got blackboard. Yep, from a Chet Atkins right record. Chet Atkins recorded that that particular piece, and George ha- George Harrison owned the record. Mm-hmm. Chet Atkins in Hi-Fi, 1957. Um, so George Harrison to Paul McCartney. Yes. Let's get a couple of songs down. Let's see. And I have to record this. I don't know if you have uh, another version of Little Wing in you, because that was amazing yesterday. I'll give you two tunes. Yeah. I'll do Little Wing, but first, seeing as though we were talking Beatles, I'll give you a track from my latest CD. And I've done now, this is my third album of Beatle Arrangements. Really the fourth if you include the Wings album. Yeah, Why but not? that doesn't quite fit in with the, the Beatles thing. The and, different, And different I have to vibe. say, I, I love all the Beatles stuff you do, but I found this album surprising. I, in some so of far? The selection of songs uh-huh. and the arrangements of some of them kind of, uh, kind of took me a little like, hmm, that's really interesting. And to some extent, this was kind of a looser album than mm-hmm. some of the others. Um, but here's um, She Loves You.
fantastic. I have to I have to stop this for a second. So I had a conversation about you with Derek Thompson, who's an author at The Atlantic, who wrote a book called How Hits Are Made. Uh-huh. And he looked at a lot of historical um, uh, trends and hits and how different things came about. It was really quite fascinating. And one of the things that he talked about was this industrial designer in the first half of the 20th century, whose name escapes me, but his philosophical insight was called Maya, most advanced yet acceptable. And uh-huh. what this person did, he's the the guy who, who literally designed the standard pencil sharpener we all grew oh, right. up with and yeah. things like that. You couldn't take something too far out into the future because people would reject it. It had to be familiar. If you wanted to sell something different, he said, make it familiar. And if you wanted to sell something familiar, you had to make it a little different. Right. And so... So Derek describes how this works, not only with industrial design, but movies and and music. And, right. and so I bring you up as an example of, you know, when you hear most Beatle covers, it's either a note-for-note reproduction, in which case it's worthless, or it's so different that you don't even recognize it, with Joe Cocker being the... Right. The exception, right? But he, but that stood alone. His Mm -hmm. version of of um, I'm trying to remember which cover he did that actually worked on on uh on its own. But when I referenced your work, I said the songs are immediately recognizable melodically as each individual Beatles Mm -hmm. song, and yet they're so different that they stand alone. And so it's that that picture the two Venn diagrams. That overlap of, oh, this is something I totally recognize, but it's such a completely fresh and different version of it that it makes it really quite interesting. And he literally a whole book, How Hits Are Made. The Beatles' music encapsulates that mm-hmm. because it's, especially something like She Loves You, where there are elements of Tim Pan Alley, mm-hmm. you know, of, of you know, Broadway there are elements of blues and there are elements of even folk, but put together in a way that is uniquely them. Um, no doubt about that. So it's that, it, it, it absolutely, that's the thing is it's, it's familiar. Well, that's their work was familiar, yet, right. but I'm talking about but, your but, versions but my of version, their work. But, but my ability to take that and then translate it to the guitar, mm-hmm. which, and I'm using my musicality, my mm-hmm. musicianship to do that, then really it, you know, I, I've got a foundation to build on. And then the way that I approach the guitar in terms of working to make the melody sing, to make the bass interesting, and, you know, whether it's reproducing what's on the Beatle record or some interpretation of that is. It's just, it, it works. It seems to work. Uh, you know, someone could sit down at a piano and play the song, and, and there's, who cares? There's nothing special there. But your versions, hmm. they're that familiar but different enough that apparently, it's Apparently I have a voice on you, the guitar, so I, I think that's part of it. To it's say the least. The to voice. say the least. Yeah. So you were asking about Little Wing. All right, before you start, I have to get this teed up. I'm going to make you start that over again, because... 
you, by the way, you destroyed the room last night with that. I don't know if you're aware of it. People were. Uh, so let's let's do a little uh, a little little wing. Little little. See how that sounds. Little little wing. Hang on, let me put my strap on so I can. Now we're getting serious. Oh yeah, I'm really serious. Pay attention to this, because his arms on the chair, so it's. Uh... <laughs>
Amazing. Thank you. Lawrence, that, that is just beyond words. We have been speaking with guitarist extraordinaire Lawrence Juber. If you enjoy this conversation, well, before I get to that, if you enjoy the music you heard, go to lawrencejuber.com. There are 24 or 25 discs available. Is that about it's right? 25. So I, I've lost count. <laughs> if you're a Beatles fan, you have to get all three Beatles albums plus the Wings album, which I think the Wings album reveals songs that I didn't like in the 70s and 80s, and I have found a newfound... Uh, I've come upon a newfound respect for them, oh, having, having you reveal different aspects of it. But if you are at all a guitar aficionado, a classical music fan, Lawrence's original compositions are... Really a, a, a beauty to behold. You you played um, uh, Guitar Noir last right. night, which yeah. is a lovely Mosaic song you played. Um, I'm trying to remember. PCH. At PCH, not Telegraph Road. Night, or Fingerboard Road. Road. Fingerboard Road. Uh, his original work is just an exposition of uh, guitar, I don't even want to say prodigy, just... just Outstanding. There's a reason musicians are big fans of his I'm because glad you like it. because of because of his work. And and I find his his, you know, when my my wife and I are in the car and we can't agree on what we want to hear, we pop in one of your discs and everybody's cool. happy. Oh, that's good. Um, so if you enjoyed uh, the music, go to LawrenceJuber.com and you can see both his tour dates and all the CDs he has for sale. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes, and you can see, or Bloomberg.com, or SoundCloud, or Overcast, and you can see the other 149 or so such conversations we've had. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at Bloomberg.net. I would be remiss if I did not thank Taylor Riggs, my producer, and Medina Parwana, my recording engineer slash audiologist, who takes my messy recordings and puts them all uh, in in uh, using her technical production expertise makes it listenable to you. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.